Now in paperback, Our Share of Night, the first novel to be translated into English by Mariana Enriquez, the International Booker Prize shortlisted author of The Dangers of Smoking in Bed. In this, quote, masterpiece of supernatural horror, says the Washington Post, a woman's mysterious death puts her husband and son on a collision course with her demonic family. Moving back and forth in time from London in the swinging 1960s to the brutal years of Argentina's military dictatorship and its turbulent aftermath, Our Share of Night is a novel like no other. A family story, a ghost story, uh, and a story of the occult and the supernatural. It's a book about the complexities of love and longing with queer subplots and themes. Our Share of Night is the masterwork of one of Latin America's most original novelists. Alan Moore, you might have heard of him. He's the author of Watchmen, amongst other things. Calls it a magnificent accomplishment. Kuzuo Ishiguro, author of Never Let Me Go, describes Enriquez as, quote, the most exciting discovery I've made in fiction for some time. Our Share of Night by Mariana Enriquez is available now wherever books are sold. Very well, Eric. And I have another note from a sponsor for us. Uh, Another Manny Haley production is making its way to theaters on October 20th, just in time for Halloween. Soulmates follows two unsuspecting strangers who find themselves participating in a twisted new dating service led by the matchmaker that forces the two singles inside a nightmarish maze designed to help them find their soulmate or die trying. Be sure to make your way to theaters to check out Soulmates starring Annie Ilanze, Charlie Weber, and Neil McDonough. Well, thank you, Scott, that we're blowing through these ad reads now, but I got one more before we get on with the show. You guys know we're about to talk about some Fangoria, baby. Fangoria has been at it for over 40 years and is better than ever. This gorgeous magazine, you know, it's highly collectible. It's delivered right to your front door four times a year. Each issue filled to the brim with articles exploring every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking past, present, and future with all the most exciting journalists, filmmakers, and horror know-it-alls to guide the way, including, from time to time, your intrepid KingCast hosts. This high-quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine, so if you want to join in on the fun, you'll need to subscribe. And to do that, all you have to do is head on over to Fangoria.com and sign up. KingCast listeners, you know you're in the family. We're part of the Fangoria Podcast Network. You know this by now. Uh, But we do have a nifty promo code we can share with you since you are in the family. You can save a whopping 25% off your order if you use the code KingCast at checkout. Very well done, Eric. And with all of that said, let's get on with the show. Fangoria. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Red rum! Red rum! You guys wanna go see a dead body? Well, sometimes, that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts... Folks, we're going to keep this intro short and sweet. This guest has been on the show before. You click the link, you know what we're here to talk about. It's Joe Lynch. He's here promoting Suitable Flesh, his brand new HP Lovecraft adaptation. And we are talking Gerald's Game. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Joe Lynch. Joe, how are you doing tonight? Hi, everybody. I'm doing great, and everything is awesome right now. I love the I love the show. Hey, Suitable Flesh coming out October 27th. We're going to talk Gerald's Game. Hey, Sex and Stephen King. All right, we done? <laughs> yep. I, yeah, we've done it. I was told to keep this shit short and sweet because I don't yeah. think anyone expected to go three hours on Creep Show before Creep Show. <laughs> so yeah. I you know, told a, brevity is key. A very, very quick funny story about that is 
the week that episode dropped was the week my dad decided to tune in and listen to the show. And so I got a very frustrated text message from him. Like, like, I don't know, mid midway through that day. And he was just like, are all your episodes three hours long? And I was like, no, it's just this is a it's an anthology movie. You know, it's it's this is what happens. You know, we want to we want a little listen to another fucking episode. You could have thrown me under the bus. You say the guy's long winded. He's just one big fat fart. You know, like, well, then then it would sound like Eric and I don't have control over our own show. And we don't want people to think that. Yeah, we got to keep that secret close to the (laughs) close to our chest. I mean, God love him. He's he's tuned in a couple of times, but he has no context for anything that is said on this show. So he's just <laughs> lost. I think he just enjoys hearing me talk to people for a few minutes. <laughs> I well, think here, let it. me ask this. Did he <laughs> end up watching? Did we did we sell him on Creep Show 2? No, I don't think he listens. Damn to it. I think he's I think he started it and saw the runtime and then ran screaming. Oh, man. so he, oh. so he told like, me uh, he's like he goes. Most of the podcasts I listen to are only half an hour long. I was like, no, they're fucking come on, man. What kind of podcast are you listening to? He also uses well, Stitcher. He doesn't know what he's doing. I love the man. <laughs> tell, him, but... tell him to use the two times speed. We were just talking about that. Like, <laughs> cut that shit down. It'll yeah, sound like a Michael commercial. Yeah, yeah, he's listening to hour long shows. He's just ha- has it on on two times speed. He doesn't understand why everybody sounds like a chipmunk. Yeah, yeah maybe. <laughs> His reaction, that's like half of film Twitter's reaction to the uh, Killers of the Flower Moon runtime. <laughs> I don't know. Everybody just like yeah. three hours. How how can I live? How People, can I can't watch a three hour Dude, long movie? How I'm can sorry. I live? I have, no, I have no patience for anyone who says, please, please stop. Less Scorsese. Sorry, can't do it. I, I would watch a six hour version. They just fucking announced that there, there, there's what? There's going to be a, a, a four hour, four or five hour version of Ridley Scott's Napoleon. Give yeah. me the ten hour version. Like these are <laughs> these guys don't have much longer. Give them, give me everything. I'll watch fucking dailies. I don't give a shit. You know. <laughs> okay, so let's talk a little bit about suitable flesh. There's, right. there's, you've you've been touring this thing at festivals for a while now. I know it's it's played a bunch of places. Now this week, the week, not the week we're recording this, but the week it'll air. Uh, it's it's finally coming out. So I'm guessing you've heard most of the questions that there are to be asked about this movie but there's something i've noticed you doing over the course of uh the last last few weeks last month or so um that i was curious to ask you about which is you are you're engaging with the people that love the movie but i'm also seeing you engaging with people that didn't love the movie and not in a combative way or a defensive way but you're actually reaching out to these folks and and talking to them um that's that's extremely interesting to me that you would take the time to do that. And I'm curious what your what your thought process is when you decide to do that. I um, look when I made this movie, I'm, you know, what's funny. I love that you're trolling me. I, but thank you, Wampler. Uh, no, this is, I'm not I'm not saying there's I'm not I'm not saying this in a negative way. I think. it's No, 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 no. Of course. No, I'm, I'm just busting chops. Look, OK, that, cool, cool, cool. The, the the reason why is no matter what I find. And I think you guys have been in this situation before too, especially when you're you're, you're talking to media and there's different outlets and everything. Mm-hmm. You do get the, and I've done this too, before as well. Like I, I am guilty of this as well. When I when I was working at G4, when I was working for different media companies, and I was doing like the press junket thing, and you're like, oh my god, you know, like you're at a junket and you're like, let let's talk about Torque. Oh my god, my favorite movie of the year. Congratulations. <laughs> 
what a spectacular piece of cinema. And you know Joseph Kahn is just sitting there going like, don't bullshit a bullshitter, dude. You know, <laughs> right. like, I, I get that you have to ease yourself into the conversation. And it's be- like a lot of times people feel like that's better than just going like, eh, it wasn't for me. You know, sp- spinning, spinning motorcycle foo, not my thing. You know, I get it. That's fine. But I would rather have an honest conversation about what, what you liked, what you didn't like, because when you just blow sunshine up people's asses, it's just the same old thing. And you know what that usually elicits? The same old goddamn fucking answers. And, you know, mm-hmm. this happened to me when we were doing press um, at Fantastic Fest like two weeks ago where there was one guy who, um, you know. Was, I saw this he, interview. Was it a video interview? Saw, yeah, yes, I saw it this. was. And like I recognized the name, and I went, "Wait a second, <laughs> I know that I know that name from fucking Letterbox." And I looked in like two and a half stars, and the first thing he said was, "So nice to meet you, love the movie." I'm like, oh, "Love, let's let's be honest, love." Two and a half stars is love. Come on, dude. I use Letterboxd, and you didn't even push a likes. You didn't even push the heart. You know, right? But by by, and I wasn't trying to call him out, but I just wanted to say like. Well, what did what did you like? What didn't you like? I'd rather this than the usual same fucking questions. And you know what? One of the best fucking interviews I've ever had because we stripped away all the bullshit and we had a conversation about cinema, about the making of the movie. It wasn't the same old rote questions that you've had before. And I, like, I got to be honest, no matter what, this movie, I want to have a dialogue with people because I know no matter what, we made a movie that is very arch in certain places it's very it's not for everybody and those who get it they're going to have one conversation those who don't get it they're going to have a different conversation or at least engaging kind of questions because we're dealing with sexuality and gender and you know and all of these kind of questions thematically that I was so excited to dig deeper into that, mm-hmm. that I mean there's there's even like trigger lines in the movie that I put in there going I really want this to like either make someone really happy or piss them off. There's a moment in the movie where one of the main characters goes, the future is female and so is mine. And, and I remember like putting it into the script going, not, not just to be a, a provocateur, just to piss someone off. I think there's a difference between, you know, kind of pushing buttons and asking questions or, or eliciting questions. And again, we like that, that one interviewer, that one guy, we ended up having a great talk and anybody that's on Twitter. Now I'm not saying this to open the floodgates for a bunch of trolls to just be like, you suck. You know, and like, Oh, thank you very much. You know, <laughs> right. let's, engage in a, let's engage in a conversation. But if you want to have this kind of dialogue and no matter what, look at people who are giving, you know, Scorsese shit for making a three and a half hour movie. Do they talk to them to, do they talk to him directly to his face? And then he can say right back, not fuck you, but I guarantee you, if you had that opportunity, he would go, here are the reasons why I felt it was imperative to have this running time because I needed to tell this, 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 and this. And I wouldn't be surprised if that person who criticized him and put him on the spot would go, oh, fair point, you know, and, or maybe, and maybe go agree to disagree. And there's nothing wrong with that because look, we are all of us. We are, we are disciples of cinema. It is an art form that is subjective and no one is wrong. Like I, I guarantee all three of us have movies that we can, you know, have in our back pocket at any time and go like, well, you know what guys, Caddyshack 2, masterpiece. And there's going to be 90% of the population is going to go, no, no, contraire, Mr. Lynch. And there's going right. to be 10% that are going to go, you know what? You're right. 
who's to say we're wrong? Maybe Alan Arkish, but other than that, <laughs> there that that's the reason why like I'm I'm engaging in a way that is provoking positive conversation, even you know those who just you know go fuck you out of ten stars. You know, we have as filmmakers, we have no control over the baggage that someone brings to the table when they sit down and they watch the movie, whether it's in a theater or at home or what have you. We don't, we have no control over their, the person's day, their predilection for that type of movie. They might not, might not like sex. They might not, not like that actress. There's nothing we can do over that. The, the thing that pisses me off is when someone just goes, oh, this movie, you know, was sloppy or, you know, this movie, um, you know, was horribly made. And I would go, yeah, you know what? I beg to differ. I know that I had no money and I had no time and I had a lot of restrictions against me, but you know what? I fucking killed myself to, for this movie for many reasons. It's very personal to me. So if you didn't like it from a subjective point of view, then say it wasn't for me. I didn't like it. If you call me out and say that I'm a bad filmmaker, then we got fucking words because totally. I know that like whether, whether or not you like the movie or even feel like, Look, I, again, we didn't have a lot of money, a lot of time and everything. So there's only so much production value that I can throw on screen before I'm like literally cutting my wrists, which I almost did. Um, but that's aside from that, I have no control over whether you're, you're going to like it or not. There's there's million movies out there that have two hundred million dollar budgets and every single facility and resource thrown its way. And yet it still doesn't resonate with an audience. Money doesn't fix everything. So. That's that's where I my hackles get up when someone just goes like, oh, this movie was horribly made. I'm like, well, that's, you know, that's your opinion. But I still think that you're wrong because I know I, I at least made something that it has a beginning and an end. There's a plot that somewhat makes sense. Performances are there. <laughs> There's a photography as a piece of content. I have done my job. And I can't say that it's I, there. There's a lot of other movies that I can personally say, like, I would say that that might be something that is less than whatever is out there. But that, so, but other than that, and if someone calls me out for being a bad filmmaker, well, you know, again, to each their own, but I would rather have someone go, I didn't like this because the sex made me uncomfortable and I get it. Mm -hmm. we, we've shown this movie enough times that and it was really interesting. Like the more and more we've shown at the theaters, especially the first time when people had no clue, what they were getting into at Tribeca, there was like, you know, the moment in Fight Club when the when the flash frame hits, and you know, you just get that, uh, and then you can see like kids are crying and people yeah. are swarming in their seat. Right. We, like the audience, and let's be honest, like thirty percent of the audience for that for that first screening was friends and family, crew members, cast members. Everybody showed up. It was right before the strike, so our entire cast was pretty much there. And it, it, there was just this weird chemical reaction when that happened, because in most cases, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's been a long time since we've seen people fucking on the big screen in, in a collective audience. Most times people go home and they turn on their laptop or they get in their, you know, on their phone or whatever, or they're by right. themselves and, and then they watch the sex there. That's not Oops. how it used to be. So no. it was just a weird sensory reaction that people had and now i think when you know and now that people are coming out and seeing it and reading the reviews or hearing that it's very horny they're going into it at least knowing that like okay i'm 
might as well not bring the raincoat today. You know, like my, I, I gotta be, in, I gotta be in public here. So I gotta, I gotta be my, be on my best behavior, but at least they're conditioned for it. This wasn't, right. you know, and, but that, that was the whole point. I wanted to do something that like <clears throat> we just haven't seen in a while and hopefully people resonate with it. And if they don't, that's totally cool. I'm right. totally fine with that. Um, now you've already been on the show before, so we don't need to do your, your Stephen King origin story. Uh, Vespi, do you have anything you want to ask Joe about suitable flesh before we move on to our main topic? Well, I think I want to jump off of what you were just talking about in that, like we're entering or not entering, we're deep into, uh, a really interesting, odd, maybe not great age right now where, when I was growing up, it was a religious right that was always going after, you know, nudity and sex in film, mm-hmm. right? And now you have the religious right and a section of the left, you know, that have some of that as well, some of that prudishness when it comes to uh, sex and any kind of set. Like, I mean, I, I've, I've even seen there was something that was going around recently where people were talking about how even fictional characters. Oh my god, I read that too. Did you see I that? Shit my, I yeah. shit my pants when there was a was because a because the fictional characters that don't exist can't consent, and it's somebody like making, and it's like, it's like, yeah, it does. It's it it it's weird how you know sometimes you that. uh conservatism can go so far that it like circles back into like the ultra left. Right. Um, and, and is indistinguishable from, from that. And, uh, you know, into and to, to the point of, you know, that you were making is like, you know, that's not how it used to be. And that's um, honestly, it shouldn't, you know, seeing, you know, consenting adults, obviously is, you know, if it's done in a, in a protective way for the actors and the actors are comfortable with it. You know, that that's, that's all, of course, like make sure mm-hmm. everybody's comfortable doing it, you know, but you know, that, that flavor of cinema is something that is missing. And, you know, you hear people calling out the, the Marvel movies all the time for not having, you know, any mm-hmm. sort of intimacy. And then like the one time they do like in Eternals, there's a sex on the beach scene and people fucking shunned it, you know, it's yeah. like, Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it, it's it's so odd to me, and it's such an interesting climate for you to release a movie like this, um, you know, which does kind of harken back uh, to, you know, the 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 Stuart the Gordon Puritans, days, right? No, I was going to say the Stuart Gordon days, where it's just like you know, horny horror, sexy horny horror. Oh, you mean the movie? I thought you meant the the time period in which we're living. <laughs> no, Sorry. no, yeah, yeah, no, no. I meant the movie, like releasing a movie at this. At, you know, a, a like this, which is, you know, kind of that Stuart Gordon horny horror genre. Um, was, so I don't know if there's a question in there so much as like, well, it's no, no, just, but you know what? You, kind of brave of you, you to, up, to, to be well, making th- this. Thank you. Know? you. Oh, yeah. thank you very much. I, I will take bravery I'm from saying you guys. You're a fucking hero. Oh, I'm from <laughs> hero of horny. I'm bringing horny back. Well, no, <laughs> this, this, this was my, when I first got the script, when uh, Barbara sent the script over from Dennis, and, you know, Again, this script has been developed for years. You know, Stuart's been working on this thing for a long time. So if this had been released when he was originally starting it, I think the pendulum would have been swung towards the the acceptance of that provocation as long as it made sense. Right. It's swung back the other way now. Now we're in a time where this is, you know, I'm not, not going to toot my own horn, but it almost seems revolutionary compared to everything else that's out there in the marketplace. That was not necessarily by design, but, and the, here's two things. One, no matter what, square one, and I've said this from the moment that I read the script all the way to the end, as long as 
my collaborators, and I'm talking about both the people behind the camera and in front of the camera, are all consenting adults who are there to create freely, but at the same time safely, then that, that as long as that has been established, and that took a lot of work, 32 page legal documents, me doing fucking storyboards on my own ass to show how I was going to like how much crack I could show, uh, you know, on a certain character. Right. But everything was literally laid out bare enough, closed set, very minimal people, you know, like roaming around, no looky lose, making sure that the actors know exactly where I'm putting anything, but no surprises. And then, then you got to create chemistry. Thank God I had people like Heather and Judah and Jonathan and Barbara, like they were all completely game and they, they knew exactly what I was going to do. So when we, you know, when we would get to those scenes on those days, they were like, we have no questions. Like, let's just go, you know, and do it in a way that feels free. Not, like people were nervous, of course. I think I was more nervous than anyone else, if anything. But more importantly, and I think this is where a lot of the arguments about sex come from, either from, you know, the conservative right or even the conservative left, like the Gen Zers or whatever. I think that as long as the sex scenes in your story, whether it's TV, film, whatever, digital, they have to have a point. They have to have a, pardon the pun, they have to have a, a plot thrust. There has to be a character thrust. The people have to change from point A to point B. Right. You know, there has to be a legitimate reason. I brought this up at uh, the Beyond Fest screening and it literally just popped in my head. I don't know where this came from and I think half the audience went, whoa, deep cut. But do you guys remember the movie Time Bomb? With um, with Michael Bean and Patsy Kensett. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No one does. It came out in the early '90s. I had a huge crush on Patsy <laughs> Kensett thanks to uh, *Lethal Weapon 2*. And who doesn't love Michael Bean, right? But it's this like kind of sci-fi on the run. Has the same kind of rhythm as *Terminator* in a way. So it's very Bean-esque. Okay. It, you know, it's it's a you know kind of two people thrown together in this predicament, and they are on the run. And of course, we got to hole up for the night. Let's find a hotel room. And, you know, in the middle of all this, you couldn't find an unsexier situation. If it were me, I would be like in the corner, shaking with the gun, waiting for some, you know, douchebag to like burst in. And then I blow them away. Not let down my guard. I don't care if it's Patsy Kensett or whoever. (laughs) I'm going to let my guard down and have this like kind of rudimentary sex scene that feels like a producer went, oh, fellas, Oh, we're, we're going to need a sex scene here. That's what the kids mm-hmm. came for. Yeah. You know? It felt so like hemmed in and no one changed. They just, it faded to black. They, you know, you cut to the clutched hands and then it slowly fades, you know, to the next scene to the next day. They're putting on their clothes. Nothing has changed. But, you know, you, you can look at the same scene in Terminator. Same thing happens. There's exactly. a major reason why they have that sex scene. That is right. a forward momentum. That is a plot reason. That is those characters change after that. So that's that's something that when when I got the script and I was reading through it, I'm going, holy crap! You know, like there's some potential for some really sexy scenes in here. But every single one of them needed to be there for a reason. And if they weren't, we cut them out. And there were even moments like that we were kind of coming up with on the day. Um, like uh, there's a scene between Heather and Barbara that wasn't necessarily in the script, but it kind of came up organically. And it was like, well, this is something that would absolutely happen if in this situation, 
the entity was trying to take over another person. So like that, that's, that to me is like, if we're going to have sex in these movies these days, you got to have a reason for it. And if you do have a reason for it, you can justify it to yourself and to your collaborators and hopefully to the audience. Well, then it's up to you whether or not you want to make it, you know, super sexy, super explicit. You know, like we, we took a cue a lot from what Stuart was going for, where, yeah, a lot some of his stuff was really explicit. Some of his stuff wasn't. It was more implied. So we were always kind of teetering that line, but always making sure that, like, if we were going to go with the sex scenes, there had to be a reason. Now and I know we're you know we're we're not really talking about Gerald's game yet, but this all this conversation applies just as much to oh, Gerald's yeah. game, you know. Absolutely. By the way, that, is, that's good. Say great, yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah. No, but I mean it's it, it's true because it's like there's in Gerald's game you hit, the whole plot is kicked off by you know kind of a a, a sex act that goes mm-hmm. wrong a kinky sect act and one that, that goes into problematic territory, I might add, like, you know, it, it's something that starts as, as a gameplay <clears throat> that, you know, some sort of BDSM you know, game, game stuff uh, that then progresses beyond uh, a place where the, especially the, the woman is uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, the thing that I, I want to kind of go, you know, uh, point out is that you mentioned that sometimes it has to propel the story. I think sometimes it just, it has to address character as well um and you know and i think that that's where we're getting we talk a lot on the show about how media literacy is is dying day by day you know each new day it dies a little bit more and and i see that whenever i see like those things you were talking about in movies like sex doesn't need to happen in movies and it's because you you i don't know why but there's this whole generation of people coming up now that are you know that plot is the only thing a movie is if it doesn't go A to B to C and every single line of dialogue uh, doesn't lead to the to the next plot point, then it's it's uh, uh, it shouldn't be there. And it's it's just a drag on the movie. Right. Um, and, you know, you kind of miss those. Mo- sometimes sometimes, pe- you know, people have sex and they it doesn't have to be the thing that like leads to, you know, the the savior of of, of the revolution during the robot yeah. army. You yeah. know, sometimes it, it it's literally just this is. You Sometimes know, the act of sex connect- is the character development. You fucking right. morons. Right. Have you never so, have you never taken a relationship to the next level by having sex? There's your fucking character development. They're yeah. now operating on a different level. Like it's I have no I have no patience for this. It's the yeah, stupidest it's, goddamn. It's, it's a it's a tough thing to to balance because I mean you guys have seen the movie and I don't want to give too much away, but you know, we're we were trying to establish with Heather's character and Jonathan's character. And if you look at them on paper and in like stills or whatever, you go, oh my God, look at those two unbelievably attractive people. They must have sex for days. They, you know, they must never have to worry about, you know, the, the grass being greener on the other side. Look at those two perfect specimens of flesh. And, you know, we, we had this very complex um, responsibility to have one scene where it's like, yes, it's the perfect couple. Look at the, he's making dinner and she's, you know, coming back home from a hard days at work, flipping those, you know, flipping, you know, flipping the gender roles a little bit there. And then they jump right into a sex scene. And, you know, for me, this is going right off what you were saying with character. It's like, I needed to show that not every home is happy in all regards, you know, just because we have happiness and, and, um, you know, some kind of complacency or just a, a status, a good status quo in one realm 
it might not be the same in other realms. And, you know, for her sexually, you know, it's just not quite there anymore. Or there, there's, no, there's no sparks. Well, and, and, and may I, I interject that otherwise. That, yeah. And can I interject also that you bookmark that with this is what sex, you know, in a loving relationship without passion looks like. And then this, then you bookmark, you bookend that with showing what, the sex with passion that you might, you know, might look like in that relationship and how it changes things around. So I don't want to spoil anything, but, uh, yes, uh, but, but I'm, but I also just want to, you know, like use this as our transition into, uh, sex and Stephen King, which is kind of the, you know, Gerald's game is, is the main topic. Um, we, we've, we've joshed Stephen King a little bit here on some of his sometimes awkward sex scenes, uh, in his books. Um, and there are there are many of those, but you know, one thing that I really want to give him credit for in Gerald's game is is how well he takes the point of view of um, uh, Jess. Fuck, I just lost her fucking name. Yeah, Jesse, Jesse Burlingame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, how much he takes her point of view, and when he gets in her mind, he stays there, right? And and it becomes her story and her. You know, she it's her dra- grappling with her trauma. It's her trying to survive a, a, a ridiculous but intense situation. It's all this stuff, but it he never loses her voice, which I think is so important mm-hmm. and why, you know, maybe, you know, I, I would qualify, you know, this book as being, you know, one of his sexier, you know, yep. uh, uh, sexier books, but also one that, you know, has the sex part of the sexier book is is so small, you know, other than kicking off the plot, it has almost nothing to do with uh, with her situation because. It, well, OK, finish your thought. No, no, no. Go ahead. <laughs> I don't think it's sexy I, at all. Because as like, I, I think yeah. I, I think that well, I'm, I don't think it's I don't think it's horny. I'm just saying that it's it's something that's grappling with adult sexual issues. It lot. is. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah. That, that's For the sure. first, first. I mean, yeah, I'm ins- not. Yes, no. I don't yeah. think you're saying anything untoward. But I yeah. but I think that the how do I put this? The fact that they are going to have sex and and kinky sex, which at the yeah. which as a side note, when this was written, um handcuffed to a fucking headboard was probably a lot kinkier than it is uh, <laughs> now. It, yep, right. I would agree with that. Fu- pretty fucking vanilla if, if we're being honest, but like um, I, be- besides the fact that that is about to happen, the, the existence of sex within the, the narrative does not make it sexy. Inherently. No. And mm. so that's, that's just the distinction I'm drawing. And in fact, it's, this is, this is uh, among his least sexy books, probably when you get right down to it. You right. know, I, I think that I, all I was trying to say was that sex is at the forefront. I mean, because it's, yes, yes, it's, it's, you know, it, it does again, propel the from plot, her, if anything. Her, Absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it's yes. from her, her perspective and, you know, also her grappling with the sexual assault that she survived as a, you know, as a right. young girl. Right. So it's like, you know, just because sex is the forefront doesn't mean it has to be a sexy story. And in this case, yes, I 100 percent agree. Even even in Flanagan's adaptation, where you have one of the most beautiful women in the in the world, you know, handcuffed to the bed. That's not the most erotic, you know, fucking. Yeah, image. it's not I don't titillating think, uh, in any way. Yeah, I don't watch Gerald's game and go, "Ooh, boy, I'm getting worked up now. You know, it's like that's not that's not the uh, the whole point of the story. I, I, I got to I got to jump in here because. Um, yes. You know, the Gerald's game, when I read it, um, you know, because one of the things not to go back to suitable flesh, but one thing that we discussed a lot was that most erotica 
the you know in, in the history of content that's being put out there, whether it's the written word or it's uh, filmed or what have you, is in most cases skewed in the male gaze. I think mm. we can all agree with that, you know. And yes. then when you don't have it, you know, like when it is coming from a female gaze perspective, um, you know, sometimes, you know, like a lot of times, it feels fresher or it just has a different perspective. Right. And sometimes that's commercial, sometimes that's not. I remember reading Gerald's game, uh, and it was the first time that I was really blown away. And you know, I, I like you guys, you know, were constant readers, devotees. I, I, I remember feeling so blown away by how King, and I can't remember other than maybe um, a few characters in certain uh, chapters would be from a female perspective or female narrative, like when it goes to first person. But this, Mm -hmm. for all intents and purposes, was a full book that King had, you know, like almost siphoned the female gaze because there were things in there and like reading it again, I felt like, God, I wonder what, like how Tabitha like gave him notes, you know, were there things that, you know, she was going, <laughs> right. well, you know, women don't really think this way. And, you know, like you should probably, you know, not, you know, like don't talk with your dick in, you know, in these certain passages and stuff. And, you know, right. the same thing with the movie where I felt like Flanagan, who up to that point, you know, has had a lot of strong female protagonists, but this yeah. also felt like, it was coming from a female gaze in a lot of great ways where I'm going, I wonder where Kate kind of gave him notes here or, you know, his mm-hmm. other female collaborators, even Carla was, you know, saying like, you know, there, there's a, there's a detail in the movie that I love to this day. And I remember the first time I saw it and, and seeing it again last night, I was like, Oh God, I love that moment. It's when she pulls the tag off of the, um, off of the, the slip and the way that she mm-hmm. does it is and again, this is my baggage coming into this, is one of the sexiest things that I've seen Carla Gugino do. Because there, <laughs> is, there is, and that's the thing, and, and going back to Suitable Flesh, an, a beautiful older woman who is exuding eroticism for her husband, and then it very, very quickly goes downhill the second Viagra is involved. Um, because she knows that it's not genuine, but there is something that she does, which obviously the tag becomes a plot point later turning into a straw, but there's something in the way that Flanagan stages it and the way that she plays it off where she's like fumbling with it in the back. That is so goddamn cute and sexy. It's the sexiest part of the movie because at that point things were still good, or at least in her mind, things were still good. Well, and, there's hope. And, there's hope in that moment, exactly. right? Because this is this is their kind of last ditch effort to reignite the passion in, in their relationship, right? And this is her making the effort and trying to be everything that she thinks he wants, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, even though she's not wholly on board with it, which you know it might be problematic, but it's also true. I mean, that's that's how relationships works, and you know sometimes you you do things that that are just you know I maybe don't want to go go to see this movie or go to this concert, but I'm going to do mm-hmm. it because I love the person and I'm going to give it a shot, right? And and I know it means something to them. Um, uh, of course, when when it, the sex is on the table, uh, the the uh, lines on that one get very very thin on what what becomes acceptable and what's not. But um, but yeah, it's it's that, that part of the of the story is is always to me that's the solid foundation that everything's built on. That this isn't you know th- that this is th- this is like her them trying to salvage their their long marriage, right? Mm-hmm. And 
and all the reasons why it it probably shouldn't have been salvaged in the first place. You know, it like, it was yeah. it was also something that like and again like I I saw Mike um, at Tribeca. Um, he actually came to the the first screening of Suitable Flesh. So I would always be curious like what he thought. It was one of those like oh Mike, you know, how's it going? And then oh hey Joe, how's it? And then he just like ran. So who knows what he really thought. Um, but like, but I gotta it was, get it the was, fuck out of here before he asked me what I thought of the movie. Yeah, exactly. Probably. Um, but look, I, I think I, I am a huge admirer of Mike's um, for many reasons, but not just the fact that, you know, Gerald's game was considered an unfilmable book for the longest time and he somehow cracked the code. But he also created and, you know, having just made a female gaze horror film, I, at least I believe I did. I feel like he tapped into something that I, I don't even think King was, you know, was resonant of in that point. And, the, you know, the, the, a lot of the kink that's in both the book and in the movie um, comes, comes through very organically. And you can almost see how, you know, we as a sexual culture are more accepting of that as of late. You know, I think that what it was like, like you just said before about like, you know, those handcuffs might not be, you know, they, they weren't that kinky, you know, they, maybe they're not kinky now, but back then, holy shit. Uh, fun fact, the, uh, those very uh, cuffs that are in Gerald's game are the same exact cuffs, not the same exact ones, but the same model that we used in Suitable Flesh. I remember the, the, that particular type of cuff and those are the type of cuffs that spell danger, but danger in a way that you have to have a safe word. If there's one thing that that is not that that I wish Jesse had, but I think it's just because again she's been thrust into the situation. She hasn't really eased herself into the BDSM world. Obviously, he you know Gerald didn't do that. They just kind of went from zero to sixty. Yeah. They, they, a, a fucking safe word should have been established. If there was. I think she might have been safer. This is the. I don't think these, safe words even existed when this was written. <laughs> that's what I mean. Like back in night, you know, in in the early nineties, you know, people I don't think thought of having, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, watermelon. Oh shit! I'm so sorry. Oh crap! Oh, like my my bad, my bad. You I know? was gonna say, what least, is your safe word, Joe? I'm not telling you that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have if one. I'm unsafe if everybody knows it. I'll Scott. tell you mine if you tell me yours. Really? All right, yeah. you go first. Bingo. <laughs> yeah, but wait, do you say it like um, Gary Oldman in The Professional? No, usually I go bingo because something has gone horribly wrong. <laughs> I had a, I had a, I had a, a sexual encounter not long ago <laughs> where something went wrong and I was not enjoying myself and I had to yell bingo. <laughs> I see now I, in my head though, I will never be able to watch. The professional the same way again. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, see, I'm gonna see Gary Oldman go bingo, and I'm gonna be thinking. About yeah, I'm gonna have to. I'm, I mean, I'm gonna have to burn that safe word now because like people are gonna be fucking tweeting it at me and blah blah blah. Yeah. Whatever. I, you know, well, I'll get a yeah. new one, uh, and you'll never guess my new one. I mean, no one would have guessed bingo, so I'll right. aquarium might be one of them. You don't know rooster. Uh, who, who fucking knows? It, it, but it's but anyway. It's anyway, be... but I, I said mine. So what's yours? Oh God, I'm gonna get in trouble for this. <sighs> You're going to have to get a new save word is what you're going to have to do. Yeah, I know. Because I, I know you tweeted fucking Pamplemousse now. Yeah. <laughs> Pamplemousse? Pamplemousse. Yeah. Pamplemousse. <laughs> well, I mean, the brilliance of, of that is that, like, the, nobody fucking knows that word, right? So it's just like, 
sure. It, it, there's no confusion. If you hear Pamplemousse while you're making Whoopi, you are <laughs> you. There is no no mistake of like, oh, I didn't I didn't understand. I thought you were saying you were into it. It's like no Pamplemousse. Yeah, yeah, Pamplemousse. Yeah, you that, gotta pay. You, your safe word can't be no. You know, yeah, it's, it's gotta be happen. some. It's it's gotta be like. I know, actually. I, no, I and no one into, is saying bingo either, hopefully. I wrote into one of my favorite lines of, of uh, the movie that we kind of like slipped in there. Uh, it was actually a moment that I think, I believe we tried on the day was uh, just in a way j- just to kind of fuck with people, like the whole triggering of sexuality, you know, with, with, with content and stuff. Um, I threw in there and have Judah m- say a moment where it's like, oh yeah, and by the way, our safe word was out. And that kills me every <laughs> fucking time. Like it, it goes over most people's heads, but I'm just like, like me and my partner, just like, like just laughing our asses off, going like, "See, that's a bad safe word." And honestly, if Jesse had a safe word, see, bringing it back again, if Jesse had a safe word, if there were rules established, and this is where I think the cautionary tale of how King uses sex in the book. And how Flanagan uses it using his camera and lighting and editing and all the you know all of his tricks in his toolbox to to make Gerald's game work. And I think Gerald's game is a fucking masterpiece. I love his movie so much. Uh, I I think that especially like the first ninety minutes, like it is just so fucking masterful. But I um, think that well, go oh go ahead. Well, no, I want to I wanted to ask you a question, and it kind of loops back around to something you were saying a moment ago. So I don't want to lose the thought, but go ahead. Something Vespi and I talk about a lot on this show is that Flanagan is two for two on Stephen King adaptations that absolutely should not have worked on screen. Mm-hmm. Gerald's Game should not have worked as a movie, and Doctor Sleep I don't think should have worked as a movie, and they nope. both play like gangbusters. So. That was, you know, that was our presumption before those movies came out because we read the books and we were like, these are unadaptable. You know, you you mentioned a little while ago that you were like, uh, you had you had a feeling along those lines after having read the book. And I'm curious, like what your reaction was when you saw what Flanagan had done here, like how he had. I mean, it's a miracle movie to me. Like this absolutely should not work in a hundred years, you know, yep. the, and, and what he did was like translate the interiority of the novel to the screen, which I don't think anyone else would have done or have, would have found such an elegant way to do that. Like with right. her by talking her, to him and yeah, yeah you know? by talking to him and talking to her, but she's always talking to herself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just curious what you're, what your reaction was on your first viewing of this and did you go into it like like we did kind of with one eyebrow cocked like okay let's see how you did oh, with this 100% i mean like i was already a fan of mike's you know from from hush and from oculus and all of his stuff before and i knew like just reading articles about him and stuff uh, and reading how how big a king fan he was but you know what there's a lot of us out there that are huge king fans that can't translate that but there's something about his skill set as a writer, uh, mm-hmm. a co-writer, but I don't think another like I don't think a the same filmmaker would have shot the way that he shoots the divergent versions of Gerald and the divergent mm-hmm. versions of Jesse. Right. You know, you guys have made movie stuff before. You know, there is a thing called eyelines. 
and <laughs> eyelines are the fucking bane of anybody's existence. They're a fucking nightmare. And somehow he was able to use eyelines, hair, makeup, lighting, costume. He used all these things that we don't normally take for granted when it comes to watching a story unfold. And he weaponized them in a way to allow you to go, I know exactly the, the entire geography of the room using the camera and using the space. So we have that established. I know exactly where each version of Jesse and Gerald is. And when you read Stephen's book, those come across with italics. Those come across with his usual language and the, the usual way that he formats paragraphs. We're mm -hmm. used to that. We're, it's like hearing a, a joke from a comic that you know. You know Stephen Wright says a right. joke a certain way. You know George Carlin says a joke a certain way. How they're written or how they're filmed, that's part of the language. And what Flanagan did was he visualized the way that King internalized all that internal monologue. And you never, I, I, again, watching it again last night, I go, never for a moment was I confused was I not clear on whose perspective was whose? I, I would love, I, I would love to just sit down with him for six hours and just talk about every single shot and how the eye lines are dictating how the story is being told. I, I think a, a less confident filmmaker, if, if Flanagan made this like four films earlier, I don't think it would have been the same film. I think there was a confidence that he had, especially after Hush, after making a movie that, again, one location film, that allowed him to go, all right, here's, here's the, the, lang the cinematic language that I'm using, and here's this prose that really needs that help. Could you imagine if they didn't do any of that internal monologuing? Like, what, was she going to talk to the fucking dog? You know, like there, right. there was, but you needed all of these elements, or it would have been I can't I, I I can't remember if Danny Boyle did this a lot in 127 hours, but you know I, he's not having lots of conversations with himself. And if he does doing that does do that, I feel and correct me if I'm wrong. This is just my perspective. But if you have a, a character having internal monologues with you with themselves, it's kind of construed that you're crazy. And the last thing that I think Mike or Stephen or anybody who's creating each version of this wants the audience to think is that this character is crazy. They might consider themselves crazy. They're talking to themselves, but the audience can't. If the audience thinks that, they, they, they're, they're lost. Well, you know? They typically me... can't, can't think that it's the, <clears throat> the storyteller, whether it's King or Flanagan, thinking that their character is crazy because then it totally undercuts everything you're yeah. asking the audience to take. Exactly. Well, yeah, this is, a, this is a story that needs to be handled more or less with kid gloves. Right. And, and or D gloves, uh, D gloves, yeah. or D gloves. Yes, but let me let me tell you something, Joe. That you might you, you may not have heard, but Mike was on the show once, and we were talking about Gerald's game. And I, I have no idea what episode this was, so don't ask people on social media. But he was telling us that he, he initially had somebody else lined up for the role, and that this actress, this is a name actress. She, I remember the story. Yeah. He, he oh yeah that that she had agreed to a different version of the script that was yeah, like uh -huh. funnier or lighter like what the fuck was even that version of the movie yeah like I like I would kill story. to read that <laughs> I, like I gotta know of Gerald's game <laughs> script yeah I I want to know like I, <laughs> I want to know I want to know like first of all I want to know who wrote it 
Secondly, I want to know, and he didn't tell us. And secondly, I want to know, I, I want to read it. Like, cause what even is that thing? You know, like I'm fascinated by that, that well, at one point there was a version of this that almost, well, it didn't almost exist. It was just like, as I understand it, it was just like a script in a database somewhere that got sent accidentally. Basically it was like written on spec or wasn't, was something like that, right? I think yeah. it was at least entertained to be an adaptation, and then they went in a different direction. Yeah. Could you imagine, like, the dark comedy version of Gerald's game? I mean, Jesus Christ. Like, talk about you know, a fundamental misunderstanding of From the, the director of old school, Todd Phillips <laughs> Gerald's game. You know what, though? If it was Todd Phillips making the Joker, different story. If it was a Todd Phillips that made, like, well, maybe hated not so much. But, you know, like, if he was doing old school and all those movies, that would be an interesting touch. I don't know if there's any way that you'd be able to get away with a comedic, lighter version of Gerald's game in that day and age, in any day and age. That movie needs to be harrowing as fuck. Yeah. And the, the, could you imagine if you walked into that movie or read, well, no, obviously King's book is what, you know, is a very firmly established tone. But if you heard like, Oh, they added some humor into this. Could you imagine what the, cause I think one of the reasons why the movie works so well, especially if you've read the book is you know, what's coming, you know, what happens when that glass breaks and she sticks the, you know, the glass into that, you know, that wood panel, you know, what's yeah. coming yeah. and you know, whether or not you want to hit fast forward a couple times, <laughs> yeah. you, that's up to you. But if you were like kind of yucking it up now, to be fair, the performances that, that are given in, in the movie, there are moments that are re like, levity moments they're not funny moments they're levity moments they they like take the pressure off a little bit whether it's like making fun of the dog or she you know she has like a, a slightly like disarming quip that she has to kind of break the tension a bit that's fine that's just good filmmaking that's that's Flanagan sure. knows how to do that well but you can't that, yeah but he was talking about a tonal thing you know oh. there's there can be lightness momentarily in a story like this but not um, you know, this is ultimately a, a story about a woman remembering being molested by her father while having a, you know, a, a horrible cataclysmic fucking sexual encounter with her, you know, somewhat abusive husband. If tonally that even approaches like a dark comedy, you fucked up. You fucked yeah. up big time and just <laughs> right. purely did not understand, understand the text. Unless, I mean, I mean, I don't know. Maybe... No, no, there's no version of it that works. It's, you know I was going to say, like, well, it depends on what you do with it. And it depends on. Yeah. But no, there's there's really no. If, if you maintain the story as it is, like you, you just couldn't do it. If you're trying to, like, recreate the integrity of what was on the page that yes. millions of people yes. for decades have. No, if, if it's an original story. Yeah, you know what? Go for broke. If you want to be, you know, the black humor, you know, if you want to do like War of the Roses and shit. You know, right. to each their own. I don't think. A, I don't think. <laughs> there you go, Danny. You got to leave out Gerald. all the molestation <laughs> shit, though. Danny DeVito as Gerald. Is that what you were about to say? Well, no. If no, if Danny DeVito directed Gerald's game, like oh, if, okay. you know, War of the Roses, Danny. DeVito, I not want to see him starring. Uh, you would I don't have know. to. You would have <laughs> to. You would have to change the story on a fundamental level in order to pull that off. And at that point, it's not really Gerald's game. It's just something with a similar premise. You know, well, like you could have hey, a yeah, like I can imagine an extremely funny movie where someone handcuffed to a headboard 
uh, is about to get down with their sexual partner and the sexual partner dies. And now it's like, Ruh-roh. how do yeah. they get out of this? I can imagine yeah. a very funny movie with that premise, but I can imagine you just pitched that the way you pitched that. I could see, I can even see the trailer of the Danny DeVito, Gerald game version. If, if, if it wasn't based on tone. this. Yeah. Right. Oh man. I just watched death death to Gerald. <laughs> I just I just watched Death This Moochie again the other night. I, I fucking, how did it all right, wait, sorry to tangent. How did it hold up? It holds up. If I have notes on that movie, it's in the pacing and the editing. There's there's a number of jokes that I feel get stepped on in the editing in the, of that movie. Um or or even the sound mix. I remember thinking that. And I I can't call to mind any examples to give you, but I remember thinking, well, if we had been able to hear that line a little louder or if mm. it hadn't cut right here, it feels a little it felt like a little sloppily edited to me or something. But like the script is there. The performances are there. The direction is there. Like DeVito gets the fucking gets the joke. It's just. Yeah, I think it's I think that's what prevents me from being like, it's a fucking masterpiece. The last couple of DeVito movies that I've seen feel like they got heavily stepped on by studio notes. For it one could reason be. Or yeah, and it could be with that too, you know? That's when I remember, I remember seeing Death to Smoochie, and look, this is well before I got my first note from a studio. Uh, and I remember going, this feels like this is four different people's perspective. You know, it, the, the shots are there and the, the performances are there. There's something about it that just doesn't feel... Uh, it does feel it does feel fucking you know choppy. yeah choppy edited to death like there's mm-hmm. there's wild inconsistencies with Catherine Keener's character in that movie where it feels like you sort of I don't know we could I could do an hour on death this movie <laughs> but but um, but at the end of the day I, lo- I like the movie I like the movie I yeah. would recommend it but. Just it's for Robin not, Williams, it's not War of the Roses, oh, which yeah. I think is a masterpiece. Yeah, 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 I agree. You know, and and bringing up War of the Roses and going back to what we were talking about before, you know, one of the things that War of the Roses kind of uh, exploits in a good way is the sexual chemistry between Kathleen Turner and Michael Douglas from prior movies, right? Right. Like, right, yeah, I remember yeah. going into that. You know, even when I first saw it as a kid, like I had two movies. Romancing the Stone and Jewel of the Nile to go off of that were on HBO every fucking day and going like, those two are great together. You know, yeah. and then Danny DeVito goes, oh yeah, yoink, and just pulls the carpet out. <laughs> and I the thing that. that- I, love, I love it when a director can uh, take the baggage that an actor has with them, good or bad, and turn it on its head. It's it's uh, casting Henry Fonda in Once Upon a Time. Yeah, exactly. Right? Or, Where or, you're, you're like, casting the, the good guy, the guy that's, Everybody is casting Tom Hanks and Road to Perdition, you know, yep. like that kind of shit where you go, ooh, I don't know how comfortable I am seeing, you know, America's dad as a fucking hitman. You know, it's like, you know, I love it. That's one of my all time favorite, favorite things to see in a movie when when there's like a smart, like twist on expectations with. Uh, yeah, I mean, like uh, that's just that, that's using cinema history and respecting the audience enough to go. I know you've seen them like this before and maybe, maybe you didn't, but you know, there's going to be a contingent of audience that have they're like, I love Heather Graham in this movie, or I love, you know, Mark Wahlberg in that movie. Let's change it up a little bit. Let's, let's show that they can not just about range, but play with your expectations and, but also chemistry too. And the, the, I think the thing that Flanagan got and I, and I, you know, again, I, 
I can't remember the episode because I did I did listen to that episode, but I don't remember the details. But you know, Carla and Bruce are magnetic together, even when they're fighting. And there is something to be said about the choice of and and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but in the in the book, does it is it explicit in the like in the idea that Gerald is like mostly naked throughout the whole film or like throughout the whole story? Oh, I think he's he's fully naked in the book. It, I think it, yeah. I, I think yeah, there's, there's a there's a my line memory in there about be... uh, his wilting dick. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, my memory of it was they were actually engaged in sexual activity yeah. when when it happened in the book. Now, where in the in the movie, I don't. I, that's not how I remember it. Like I remember he's remember like the... about to do it. Like he's hard. He's like on top of her, but then she kicks him like in the crotch. Then he fucking. Right. You will and then has a heart attack and falls over. That's that's how I remember it. Now, if I was as lucky to be as uh, jacked as Bruce Greenwood is mm-hmm. in this in this this fucking movie, like mm-hmm. I remember like watching it last night, going, you know what? I don't mind having silver fox goals. Those are those are definite <laughs> silver fox goals. Right. Um, both of them, you know, whether or not Flanagan knows that he is sexualizing these characters in a good way. You know, there is a lot of because I think what you guys are saying before, you know, like it being his least sexy story, Kings, um, and you know, doing my own research in well, like besides kind of like my own books. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Here's the thing, like I like, and when we were first talking about this the day after the screening, and you know, Scott, you and I were at the highball, going like, all right, what are we going to talk about? And you know, people have been talking about sex pertaining to my movie and everything and have had a lot of i feel like fucking dr ruth lately to be honest with you um, <laughs> yeah and uh you know it, it made me think and i remember walking away from that and started to really think about sexuality in stephen king's books and his adaptations and his movies and stuff and you know when i was growing up uh and i was ingesting all of these to me new writers not just king but you had, I was a big fan of all the splatterpunk uh, writers, you know, like uh, Skip Inspector and uh, David Scow and Wright and Ketchum, you know, and Ed Lee and all of these, these writers that were not afraid of pushing the boundaries of sexuality for whatever reason. Barker. In, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Barker was the king, you know, yeah. like the stuff. I, and look, I didn't get it half the shit that he was writing like it was so dense (laughs) (laughs) but when you got to some of those passages where you're like whoa man i never heard a penis described quite like that before my god (laughs) like there was something about how there was all of these writers that were really taking the advantage of the um the provocation of the day and being able to publish you know short stories novels with these kind of explicit passages i remember um skip inspector did you know light at the end they also had the bridge um the bridge is incredibly sexual at times and like whoa there was um i don't know if you guys remember this there was a book that um that came out as an anthology book called book of the dead uh that stephen had i believe it was home delivery was in the first time published in that and when you have my favorite writer in this collection, this cabal of other writers, including all the guys that I mentioned, including Barker and including Skip Inspector, Poppy Z. Bright, Robert McCannum, Doug Winter. They, all of them were going like, oh yeah, watch this. And they were getting really sexual with their, and really sexually explicit. And King didn't. 
And I like, it made me go back and think like, I don't think, and you know, I, I don't know if you guys agree or not, but I think when it comes to like plot, there are plenty of instances, everything from, you know, the library police to obviously it, um, there's, there's the, the stand, obviously there's, there's lots of passages that have sexual acts in them. I just don't know if he's interested in eroticizing them. And that's not a I bad thing. Not, this is, this is a really good topic for discussion. <laughs> I, because I feel like, I feel like Stephen King as a person is horny. Yes. Um, there's enough evidence and I, I have not prepared a file on this, so I'm, <laughs> I, I can't. I cannot present examples to you. But there's enough evidence of him, you know, talking about a lady's legs or her ass or her boobs or, you know, you know, he's he's a little horned up, and it and it pops up here and there. Um, but typically, his sex scenes or. Uh, Sexual content in his books, I should say, tends to fall under two different categories. And I think one of them is awkward sex scenes. And here I'm thinking mm -hmm. of needful things with uh, I'm forgetting the characters names. Pangborn and Bonnie. Is it? I mm. know oh, it's Bonnie Bedelia is in the movie. I'm yeah, Bonnie Bedelia plays. Yeah. It. yeah, sorry. I know you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, that uh, that that sex scene is very awkward. Uh, the sex scene in the raft is very awkward. Right. Uh, for for a number of reasons. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. See our three hour long episode on Creep Show 2 with, with Joe Lynch. Sorry. Um, and then, <laughs> and, uh, but then, you know, typically if you're getting uh, any amount of explicit content or just a sex scene in general, I think more often than not, it's there for like a sinister reason. Mm -hmm. And, so so it's weird. Like I think I believe personally King is a horny man. I think I think I think he loves his wife. I think he loves engaging in uh, sexual congress with his wife. Uh I, I think he's been clear about that on a number of occasions with a with a wink and a nod. And I also think like some of his des descriptions would lead me to believe that he's kind of a horny guy. But also mm -hmm. I think he uses it sparingly. I agree with Joe that he is not interested in being an erotic writer uh right. and i think that probably explains some of the awkwardness of the sex scenes that are more just straight up yeah the mist is another awkward sex scene like very oh, awkward fuck that one. yeah it is oh yeah yeah big yeah. time at least in the but, book but then, um yeah i was gonna say but then like kind of to your point like the times where he seems to really get into it is when he's talking about like marital sex like I, i'm thinking mm -hmm. of uh green mile when uh uh, when uh, yeah, Paul yeah. goes back home after being cured, and he and his wife fuck all night, you know. But that, but what's wonderful about that is that it's just it's just this happily married couple with the kids have left the nest. You know, it's not right. It's not explicitly like, oh my god, this is nine and a half weeks. It's just you know a loving couple connecting, right? Well, like, uh, more, yeah. More well, like there's a, a difference between weeks. there's a difference between horny and kinky, and I yeah. think King is horny. I don't yes. think he's I don't think he's a freak. Except when but the handcuffs come out. That's well, not that's, that's like that's 
it's it's such a typical example of of kinky sex. I think that <laughs> I, right. I I am willing to I'm willing to wager fifty dollars that Stephen King has never had sex with someone where handcuffs were involved. We I if think, we get him back on the show, you can put that at the top of the list. To yeah, ask yeah, we'll see. Let's see how that goes um, over. <laughs> but I, but I but I do think he's he's aware of it. I think he's aware of right. various. Uh, and I'm not saying this is one perversions. And, mm-hmm. you know, the darker side of of uh, sexual Congress, uh, I, I think that at the time that was a perfect setup for a horror story. But I don't right. think that, you know, um, again, it's it's such a vanilla thing. Handcuffs like you can fucking I mean, that's that's nothing, man. It, like in this in this purview, that is like the first thing that like is in the front of the sex shop where they're like, oh, for all the newbies. Here's right. a wide array of handcuffs. And you walk in the back and you're like, wow, shit. It's like they have the, uh, <laughs> yes, what is exactly. the, cha- the, the dildo chainsaw from Naked Gun 33 and a third. Like, oh, <laughs> crap. But, you know, I, like the thing that I love about what, you know, the fact that King is still doing it today. Like I'm, I'm in the middle of Holly right now. And I love mm. how, you know, most of his books are a timestamp to where he is in his life, where right. we are in our lives. Holly's Obviously, especially you know, that. Yeah. But, oh, I mean, it is as big a, a mirror on our times as I've seen it in a lot in, in a while. But he, you know, that I can go back and read some of his older stuff and go like, oh yeah, you know, the, the stand is a product of the seventies, and um, Christine feels very much like the eighties, and uh, you know, Gerald's game coming into his like eclipse saga. Um, which I love. I think that, you know, the fact that he, you know, he connected this with Dolores Claiborne. What is the third uh, Eclipse movie? Isn't there, isn't there a third Eclipse story? There was, but it didn't didn't get written and or, you know, turned into anything. Because I remember he intended it to be a a trilogy of, of like women escaping, uh, you know, uh, trauma or abuse uh, that are all tied together with that Eclipse. Um, Dolores Claiborne. There's this theory that it was about, uh, Rose Matter. Right? Rose Matter. Oh yeah. Yeah. wow! That maybe Rose Matter evolved out of that, but no, nobody's ever confirmed that or said that. So interesting. Yeah. Well, wait, wait, hold on. Uh, one of my heroes has an untold story that they need to tell. I'm on it. I, I got this, guys. <laughs> the third Eclipse movie. Um, yeah. Well, the thing is, though, like those those two stories, you know, obviously written. You know, correct me if I'm wrong. Was um, Gerald's Game was ninety one. Uh, I thought it was a little bit later. It was 92. Yeah. 92. But he like, so I, I'm curious because of its sexual proclivities and the fact that it is so plot based, like plot intensive with the sexuality, like not where he was, but where were we at a time that he felt comfortable enough to use something that would be considered provocative. I mean, you know, the, having done a lot, quote unquote, a lot of research. Yes, I can actually write off of my taxes all of the videos that I rented from Cinephile that were like, you know, hidden obsessions and body chemistry and sliver <laughs> and basic instincts. Oh right. man, my accountant love that shit. But I watched a lot of them. And, you know, there was a period in our uh, pop culture sensibility with sex um, that wasn't puritanical, uh, that it felt like we were, I mean, we were still coming off of the terror of AIDS. You know, so sexuality obviously was staying at home, I guess. And you don't have like, there's not a lot of talk of polygamy 
and there's not a lot of talk of uh, you know BDSM or other kinks. You know, none of. I mean, just the fact that people would say like, "What's sexual fluidity?" It's like, well, that comes out of your penis. Like, no, 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 that's that's a different uh, concept altogether now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where was King at that time that he was interested in in or comfortable enough to say, "Look, I'm the biggest writer in the world, and anything that I'm going to write, hopefully, will connect with an audience." I'll never forget. Oh man, I don't know if you guys remember this. At my Walden books, when that book came out, you know, do you remember the hardcover with the the handcuffs against the bedpost, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. All, all of the copies were turned around. Oh, what? really? Where did yep. you live? Uh, in Long Island, you know. Which, come on, what? you know, the, the, the Long Island Lolita. Provo. No, nope. Believe me, Long Island, where right next to it, all of the you know, like the you know, Gore Zone and Fangoria were right on the magazine shelf. But for some reason, I remember walking in and going, why am I looking at, because I was like, couldn't wait to get to you know, Walden Books. And it wasn't Beat Alton Bookseller. No, it was definitely Walden Books. Couldn't wait to get there and grab the new King book. And I'd heard about it and stuff like that. And then I ran in and every single one of the copies was flipped over. So you just saw his his face. And Yeah, it, I think this has less to do with King and more to do with, you know, as you're talking about the the post AIDS era, the political correctness of the 90s, particularly yeah, like the, maybe, the early 90s. You know, but, but um, like I wonder if that's true, you know, I, I wonder if that was maybe where he was coming from in terms of like not saying like I got to be dangerous, you know, but maybe knowing that that would push a button because you know he had approval on all of the art, you know, you know he looked at the galleys and went like, yes, handcuffs big fat handcuffs right on the cover. You know what you're going to like, if anything, the audience will know what they're going to get. And maybe that was just too much for people. Like maybe that was the kind of provocation that obviously turned, uh, you know, Phyllis, the, uh, the, the person at Walden books to flip all, all those copies over. It was just an, it was an interesting time to do that. And then you have Mike coming along and taking Netflix money in a world where, like I was watching it last night going, I don't know if this movie would have been released or made as is if it wasn't for a company like Netflix to say, take all of your production value and all of your studio know-how and your movie stars and let's pop it into the algorithm and let's see what happens. I would love to have seen this movie in the theater. I would Mm. have loved to have felt what it was like, obviously for the degloving scene, but everything else. Yeah, he showed it at Fantastic Fest and and it was... Uh, it's what was the my, my go-to example of, of people. <laughs> I, I know a lot of people who go to these film festivals and they're like, I'm not going to see anything that's going to be on a streaming service. And I'm like, but th- this is a prime example. Gerald's game. That's a movie that was meant to be seen with an audience because you yeah, get to that, mm-hmm. that moment and hearing everybody going, uh, uh, and start squirming or... at that screen. No yeah. way. Yeah. yeah. Holy shit. But the, yeah, like, absolutely. The like a, you guys a, a fantastic all... fest mainstay guy. You know, who you would probably know if I said it by name, uh, like like fainted or fucking had to leave the theater or something. Because he's lightheaded. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Scene. yeah, it was. You know what? I totally get it. I 100 yeah. percent get it. Like, I will, I will admit it's gnarly. It's so effectively done. My uh, uh, my wife and I were watching it last night and we watched some gnarly shit. We just bun- rented a bunch of Jello and like yeah. Holocaust is our thing. But last oh, night no. I was, like, she immediately goes like, 
fast forward. You got, I, I can't, I can't handle it. And I go like, <laughs> wait a minute. She can watch a, a monkey get his head chopped off and his brains eaten, but can't like a real life one that actually happened, but she can't watch uh, the degloving scene. Yeah. What's your point? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm just trying to find, find out where the, uh, where, where, where her boundaries, her yeah, moral boundaries. <laughs> Believe me, I was so all. close to saying Pamplemousse guys, Pamplemousse. Pamplemousse. <laughs> it is, it is amazing to think like, you know, even I've seen the movie three times now and I was still like, like, Ugh. Oh, Oh, Oh. And so usually when, you know, when you, cause I, I read the book again, I actually, I, I got the audio book a couple of years ago. And uh, I just, I remember re- like listening to it and the way that it's described, I usually go, I can't because the theater in my head is absolutely fucking disgusting. It's usually got Tom Savini or Rob Bottin, you know, working on the effects and they're making it the most disgusting shit with tendons flying out and everything. And, and I'm going to make myself sick in my head. And I think that what Flanagan did with the sound and the way that he, um, you know, just just used enough imagery. There's that one shot. And this is what I was saying. was like, I went click, click, click. And of course it goes right to the shot where she looks at her hand and all the flaying skin is just hanging off. And like, Oh God damn it. Too far. You should have pushed it again. Pamplemousse. 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 Um, yeah. God damn it. Um, but anyway, so I, I think that it's an, it was such an interesting topic that we talked about when Scott, when you and I were talking about like Stephen King and sex and, you know, I'm glad that we brought up Gerald's game because it did have an effect on me because, you know, a lot of the stuff that it was dealing with, especially even just iconography with like the handcuffs, those handcuffs were, I remember seeing them in the movie and going like being in a props meeting during Suitable Flesh. And I, I specifically said, because when, I don't know if you guys have ever been in those prop meetings before, but like the art department lays out like four or five different mm-hmm. variants of whatever prop that you want right and it can be you know what type of pencil what kind of knife you know what gun do you want them to have they laid out all of the uh handcuffs and i immediately went like you know what's missing it's the gerald's we we need the gerald's game one they had fuzzy handcuffs and they had like handcuffs that looked like they were attached to a cop i'm like no 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 we need the ones that you obviously need like a little bit of length so then i pulled up gerald's game and said those those ones right there that's the right. ones they got. So, but even even still, like the fact that they were he King was able to tackle with sexual politics and provocation and boundaries and the female gaze in his book and how Mike was able to translate that in the film. Like I I, I would love to see more sexuality in Stephen King's oeuvre or or even like the way that it could be presented in you know in some of his films. I would love to see that, you know, but the fact that we were able to kind of go through that and, and not spend thir- three hours doing it. I'm very proud of ourselves. <laughs> yes, we did. Uh, I do want to, I do want to bring up one more thing before we wrap up here. And that's something that Joe, you listened to the show. So you might've heard the story or you might've heard it from Barbara herself, but did you know that there was a version of Gerald's game at some point that uh, Stuart Gordon was going to direct yep. with her in the lead? Uh-huh. Yep. And I asked Barbara about that and she was just like, man, like I was expecting to say dodged bullet. She was just like, that was such a missed opportunity because you know what? Like immediately, I believe, I I think I even read about it in the teletype in Fango once, like when it was like first announced. And hmm. 
I immediately it all clicked. You know, I, I remember thinking like, if there was a filmmaker, this is before pre Flanagan, if there was a filmmaker that could tackle those sorts of sexual politics, it would be Stewart, hundred percent. And if there was someone who is fearless enough to do some of the shit that she's done in the past, you know, from beyond reanimator, she fucking right. goes there. But also now I can even say like, cause Carla Gugino is a fucking powerhouse. Like there's, yeah. she, she conveys 17 different emotions in three minutes. It's amazing what she does. Um, if it was the Barbara that I thought of years ago, before I had seen some of her recent work, like in your next and, Jacob's wife, and this is no, no Jacob's not wife. Detriment. She is so, that, Jacob's she, wife's. A, it's a, a, that's her best performance. I'm sorry, absolutely. I know you've got a new movie out with her, but that's like, yeah, but that's, that's no, that's, that's her that's, high that's point. Like, that's like saying like, oh, you know, Robert De Niro, you know, is pretty, you know, pretty good in Goodfellas, but he's his movie, it, Raging Bull, is his movie. That like, right, I'm right. lucky and blessed that I have Barbara in a supporting part. She wasn't supposed to be in the movie. You know, she was yeah. just going to be the producer. It wasn't until we had developed the script more. And then, well, also it was like, please, please, can you be in it? You know, like, and then she's like, okay, fine. And then she immediately kind of jumped into it. That's how good she is. But knowing what Barbara could do in like the last couple of films, especially, especially Jacob's wife, I would love to see her handcuffed to that bedpost. <laughs> that, that came out wrong. Sorry, Barbara. I will. I, I would are. like to to say for for the audience's benefit that um, an idea that Vespa and I re- originally had when we knew we were going to do an episode promoting um, suitable flesh was to have Joe and Barbara on at the same time, and we, we couldn't do that because of the SAG-AFTRA, you know, strikes. You know, and obviously they, our fucking stupid little podcast has not, you know, is nothing in the face of what those people are uh, fighting for. Uh, but if, if she could have been here, we would, we would have tried very hard to, to get her here for this. We, we yeah. love Barbara very much. Have you, and you have, we, you guys haven't had her on yet, right? Yeah, we had her we, on. It, yeah. Kind of early in the show's run. She oh, was, uh, yes. Say yeah, that was a lot, while ago. Right? Yeah. That's right. Okay. Well, you know what? Have her back on again. She is chomping at the bit to talk to anybody about this movie, that movie, she, like her garden. <laughs> but she can't matter. right now, right? Well, no, not now. But like, you know what? Okay. When, when Suitable Flesh comes out in January on Shutter and in physical media, uh, there you go. It's round sold. two. If the strike is over by then, sold. Let's hope. Well, Joe, uh, this is usually the point where we... Uh, ask our, ask our guests to, um, go into self promo mode, you know, tell people, uh, where they can see suitable flesh this week and in the future and where they can find you and all of that fun stuff. Uh, well, if if you want to hear me shamelessly promote the movie, uh, just skip back about, uh, an hour and a half and hear the first 20 minutes of me pontificating on the movie. Um, but it, uh, Super Flesh comes out in theaters and VOD October 27th. Uh, please go see it. Please see it in the theater. It's, it's worth going to see it and, and feeling other people getting hot and heavy, you know, next to you, hopefully. Uh, if you watch it at home, good luck. Hopefully you get laid. Um, <laughs> the movie is also going to be out um, on Shutter and physical media in January. But you know what? Support indie film. See it now. Support with your dollars. 
Um, and, uh, and if you like it or if you don't, either way, you can tweet at me uh, or exit me. I don't know what the fuck you call it anymore. Or just <laughs> let me know what you think, good or bad or otherwise. Go on Letterboxd. Uh, believe me, I'm watching uh, at, at the <laughs> Joe Lynch. Um, and look, again, I love – I make movies because I love – these conversations i love being at fantastic fest and having a conversation outside i just love talking movies like you guys do and if you're talking about my movie i don't need you to blow smoke up my ass if, if you don't like something tell me or tell the filmmaker you know like these two these two guys who've been waiting to get off the air and go joe i really didn't like your movie like i get it it's totally fine joe like, i'm gonna tell you i haven't seen the movie yet i'm sorry what? they sent me they sent me a screener a few days ago but we've been like we're recording this on the day where our 200th episode dropped and we were we finished that episode uh less than 24 hours ago <laughs> like, yeah. like closer to 12 hours ago so yeah. um i have not watched it yet but the people that i have talked to who are on my wavelength tell me that i will enjoy it uh, I did see it, and uh, and I'm not bullshitting you when I say that I liked it. And I'll tell you what actually kind of was the key for your movie to me was when I found out that this was originally developed by Stuart Gordon. Because once you get into that mindset, uh, and maybe... I, I, here's the thing is I think people remember s some Stuart Gordon movies differently than they actually are. Mm -hmm. Like, to me, this suitable flesh and the highest compliment I can pay it is that it feels like what reanimator actually was not your memory of reanimator. Right. That's so a, you, that's a great, that's a great response to it. I, I, I couldn't yeah. agree more to be honest. And you have some story Gordon Easter eggs in there, right? For, oh, I, for I, got, I got, I got Stuart Gordon Easter eggs. There's characters who show up in other movies that are not necessarily in reanimator from beyond. If you've seen King of the ants, a major character from King of the ants shows up in a cameo. Um, yeah, I mean, like, like you guys have seen that movie, right? I haven't. No, oh, Joe, I've Stuart never Gordon. seen a movie, apparently. I, but I, I, I'm starting but, to glean on this. Where tell, tell me you put space truckers in there, the square pigs from space truckers, and then you're in, uh, then I've seen that and I won't feel as dumb. So I will say this I actually actively looked for Steven Dorff's jacket in space truckers <laughs> and, and to give to judah um and unfortunately it was i could not find it but there's um there's some stuff from dagon in there there's some stuff from reanimator uh certain characters certain locations show up i mean it's a little bit of a secret handshake but you don't have to you don't have to know those movies to enjoy them but those who do we're you know we park our cars in the same garage so Actually, I have I have one more question. Something you something you just said, jog something loose. I'm sorry. I'm going to keep us all here a, a little longer. Joe, one of my big bugaboos about horror adaptations is that we don't get enough Lovecraft adaptations. And I have my own feelings about why that might be. None of them have to do with the fact that Lovecraft was a stone cold racist. You know, okay. I, I don't think that's honestly the issue. But um, I, I'm curious. I, I'm curious uh why why you think that is like there there's so few and far between and the good ones are even fewer and far between what's going on there well let's look at the comparison between someone like lovecraft who was writing in the 20s who had a 1920s kind of um uh like i guess of the moment industrial revolution kind of sensibility but also very puritanical and very conservative and 
border. Well, I'm not going to say borderline. He was fucking yeah. racist and sexist, but he had some great fucking ideas. Some ideas of which can translate over decades and centuries and generations. Like of course. His high yes. concepts were very, very um, adaptable, so to speak. He's, he's basically the, the godfather he, of cosmic horror. You know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, but also his prose can kind of turn some people off. I think. Um, yeah, it's dry as and fuck. That's one of the. the it, it's dry as fuck, but and and it's very literal. And you know, yes. I, I think that was one of the things that Dennis Paoli, um, when he wrote the original script and all the other stuff that he's written, like I've I've read all the source material for, say, like Herbert West Reanimator and the stuff that came from From Beyond and uh, Shadows Over Ismuth. All of those are incredibly dry. So, yeah. And not only that, but just the storytelling structure. And this was one thing that I'm, I'm like actually really proud of when it came to how Thing on the Doorstep was adapted was that sometimes it's really hard to tell a story and then have a character tell another story. You know, like this is essentially a story about someone telling a story and you have this very mm -hmm. elongated flashback. Um, that sometimes is, is trickier to keep the audience engaged with all of those concepts in that form. Whereas you can take Stephen King and the way that he writes, whether he's writing first person or he's writing third person, they are very much of the moment. They feel very relatable. Whereas I don't think all of Lovecraft's characters are incredibly relatable unless you modernize them. And it was so funny. I was talking about mm -hmm. this like, a couple of days ago where like you don't see a lot of adaptations of Lovecraft that were period based. You know, they're they're all they're always modernized in one form or another. You don't see a lot of corsets and buggies. No, you know? right. like they're, video they're not games have the... been better about this. Yeah, exactly. And that I think just Lovecraft is just it's a dry piece of toast that needs the right kind of butter to make it palatable for audiences or for, you know, somebody with a particular set of taste buds. Uh, you know, I, and I'm lucky that, you know, we had Dennis and, you know, and Brian behind us to support us like that. And again, with like Stuart, you look at the stuff that Stuart's done, you know, Stuart, I remember when Shadows Over Ismuth, which was going to be one of Stuart's next films when he got scrapped from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which still blows my mind that we almost had a Stuart Gordon, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Um, when that was scrapped and he moved on to go back to the well, so to speak, with... Um, with shadows, I immediately read that book. I was like, "Oh man, here it comes! Small town aquatic guild-based sexual horror. I'm fucking in." And I read the book, and I was like, "Oh god, this is like really not very fun, you know." And, but I'm like, you know what? In Stuart, we trust. I've seen his other works. I read Herbert West, and you know, Herbert West Reanimator is six chapters. That was kind of like what King did with the Green Mile. They were little chapters that were put into magazines each month and they were very serialized. But you read that that those six chapters and those things span like 10 years in the life of Herbert West, whereas Reanimator's just like what, two semesters? And somehow Stuart and Brian and obviously Dennis, they were able to figure out the code, the you know, the imitation code or what have you to bring Lovecraft and his spirit to an audience that has never heard of Lovecraft before in most cases. When I mm -hmm. when I saw the poster for Reanimator, after I looked at that cool, amazing poster of, you know, Herbert West with the head and, and Dr. Mm -hmm. Hill's body behind him, I was like, holy shit. 
who the hell is H.P. Lovecraft? I had no fucking clue. It made me interested in him, though. Um, so I think uh, just Lovecraft is just one of those writers that is so dense and, and verbose in certain ways and so dry that his concepts, when you tell someone the concept, you go, that's fucking brilliant. Then you read the prose and you go, mm, it just it, it reads a little old fashioned. And I think that's why a lot of times people go, let me take this concept and run it through the uh, the modernized AI and let's see what spits out the other mm -hmm. end. Describing Lovecraft's source material as toast that needs some butter on it is the best version I have ever. <laughs> I have asked I have asked this question of, of a number of people like filmmakers who have who have adapted Lovecraft or or are interested in doing it. I've, I've talked to Guillermo del Toro about this. Like it's um, this is the best explanation or the, the, the most succinctly put explanation I've ever heard. So now that's well, thank said, you for that. I, I'm going to steal it going forward. Please do. And I would say to be more detailed that Lovecraft is a nice sourdough piece of dry toast uh, that needs <laughs> well, it's a definitely nice white bread. Son. Yeah, no, it, oh, it, it's as white as it comes, but it's like, like it's sour. He's probably got like a sour face right now thinking about the movie in his grave. But, you know, that's, I would say that that's probably the nice piece of toast that, uh, that Lovecraft is. And, you know, any filmmaker that comes in, you know, Del Toro is going to come in with his, you know, his very special brand of, uh, of butter, probably like peppered with tahini uh, spices or whatever. <laughs> you know, I, I'm coming in. Probably, we'll allow it. Well, you know, I mean, let's, let's be fair. Um, you know, Guillermo yeah. del fucking del Toro exactly. loves. You know what? Right now, he's right now he's listening to it. Go fucking Lynch, you fucking cocksucker. He's painting um, a miniature right now and eating watermelon or some similar, maybe mango with with tahini. <laughs> I, I will, I will, I will put money on it. And it's delicious. Uh, well, like, why wouldn't you eat that? Yeah. My uh, my my butter is probably going to have with a, a little man sauce in there, so that's that's <laughs> that's where my, I'm I'm coming from, so to speak. Hey, oh, right. oh my so god! If you want to eat, come on toast. Uh, this week, rush out to the theater and see Joe Lynch's suitable flesh. Pample moose. <laughs> Many thanks to Joe Lynch for joining us yes. uh, yet again. We were able to do his episode, get it in and out in about half the time of his, his uh, last one. I don't know about you, Scott, but uh, when whenever the uh, safe words started being trotted out, that's when I kind of knew we had something special on our hands this time. Yeah, that was good. I uh, already changed mine, so don't bother repeating it back to me. I... You're not going to be the first person to do that, and uh, it's it's uh, not going to be terribly funny. <laughs> Although I, I now really desperately want to uh, have some Pamplemousse uh, merchandise, we need to make Pamplemousse a thing. I will I will tell you though that Joe has been sending me photos of Pamplemousse cans of Lacroix uh, <laughs> since we recorded this, <laughs> and uh, he too has had to uh, change up his his safe word. So leave Joe leave Joe alone about uh, Pamplemousse stuff. I'm on the opposite track. I think you guys should start hashtagging Pamplemousse all over the place. Let's make Pamplemousse a thing. Let's mm -hmm. do it. <laughs> all right. Not my problem. Yes. I, yes. I, I have I have executed order Pamplemousse. Now go <laughs> go do it. Um, so let's jump right into telling you guys what we have on deck next week in the main feed. Uh, it's gonna it's a really exciting episode, this one for us. Uh, we have a very talented and very I'd say I'd call him high profile uh, 
video game creative uh, on deck. Uh, somebody who people who know Stephen King and love Stephen King are absolutely aware of his work. And uh, that's all I'll say on that front. And he came with a really great title. He wants he came in talking about on writing. So next week we will be diving into Stephen King's on writing with a uh, very exciting uh, video game director and author. Mm-hmm. Very fitting title for this particular guest and for what he's here to promote. Especially, uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, this week on the KingCast Patreon, which is located at www.patreon.com backslash the KingCast, uh, we are speaking with a filmmaker by the name of Julia Marchese, who has adapted Stephen King's short story, I Know What You Need. It is a dollar baby. Uh, she went up to the University of Maine, shot this exactly where the original short story was set. And um, comes on to tell us about how the Dollar Baby program worked, how the how the short came together, and uh, we talk about Dark Tower and some, you know, some uh, other fun Stephen King things. So uh, go over to patreon.com backslash the KingCast, get signed up for that and everything else we have coming down the way on uh, on the Patreon, including brand new episodes of Shelbyville, which have already started rolling out as of last Friday. You're not going to want to miss those. Yep, season two is underway, and we are very excited for everybody to hear what we've been coming up with on that. And as usual, we'll, we will have these kind of deeper dives into niche Stephen King topics from time to time. And we still have commentaries, and we got a bunch of stuff over there. So if you've only listened to the show on the main feed, you're only getting half the show. Feel free to sign up and uh, join us over there. Get get in that Discord and chat with us uh, on Discord. We just did a nice AMA with everybody there uh, just this past week and had a lot of fun and uh, we'll do stuff like that more often i think yeah absolutely awesome well uh, Well, that's it for this week folks we'll talk to you later bye the king cast is a fangoria podcast production the show is produced hosted and created by eric vespi that's me and scott wampler tira andley and abby goel are executive producers daniel danger is our art director and editing is done by yours truly 